Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Today, U.S. Senator John Barrasso is preparing the Republican Party platform for the upcoming convention. Part of that is trying to get Donald Trump on board. I've encouraged him to embrace the platform, talked about the things that were important to getting the the country growing again in terms of the economy. Hard times for coal means hard times for other industries as well. The trickle-down effect has affected us big time. We'll also hear about how Wyoming is predicted to be the last state to close the gender wage gap. And summer is the perfect time for the great American road trip. So my freezer is full of these here, engine block burritos. Those stories and much more are coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. The coal industry's recent downturn is casting ripples throughout the economy in the West. In Wyoming, the unemployment rate is climbing faster than any other state in the country. And it's not just miners who are struggling. From a hotel in Gillette, Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce explores the fallout from the collapsing mineral economy. What time are you checking out for? Uh, let's go. It's close to midnight, but at the front desk of the Oak Tree Inn, Chris Lohman is still checking people in and out. They're like family to me, you know, and, and, and I am to them. The Oak Tree Inn is not your typical hotel. It has private rooms and key cards and fresh towels, but most of the people who stay here work for BNSF, one of the nation's largest railroads. In fact, until recently, those were the only people who could stay at the hotel. It was entirely under contract to BNSF. Because of that, the hotel has some unusual features. Administrative assistant Tammy Burke takes me on a tour, starting with the enormous communal kitchen where the railroaders cook. We don't do their dishes, they have to do their own. (laughs) Through another set of doors, there's a locker room and a gym, both just for the railroaders. There are a few people in the gym and another handful in the TV room. But Burke says compared to a year ago, the place is basically deserted. The trickle-down effect has affected us big time. The railroads are hugely dependent on coal. In 2015, shipping it generated almost 20% of railroad revenues. But last year, coal collapsed. And in the first quarter of 2016, coal shipments were down 33%. Thousands of railroad workers have been furloughed or laid off in states like Wyoming and Colorado. Shelley Lively is one of the lucky ones still working. She runs trains from Edgemont, South Dakota, to the coal mines in Gillette and back, and stays at the oak tree on her rest breaks. She says communities rely on the railroad to stay alive. Edgemont's nothing. It's got three bars and a post office. It's going to be a ghost town. Lively says at this point, anyone who hasn't been working for the railroad for more than a decade simply isn't working, unless they're willing to relocate to California or Texas. She points to the hundreds of idle locomotives parked on the tracks outside of Gillette. You'll see miles and miles and miles of engines. Miles of engines. Coal shipments have rebounded slightly in recent weeks, but Lively says it's going to take a lot more to get back to where things were. 
and she's worried about what will happen to railroad communities if it doesn't. It's affecting everybody because we're not spending any money. When railroaders don't spend money and the coal guys don't spend money, the economy doesn't move. At the Oak Tree, it means less work for employees. Both housekeeping and the maintenance staff have had their hours cut significantly. Mike Mitchell is a former oil field worker. Now he does maintenance at the hotel. And he says it's a struggle to survive on reduced hours. Pretty much every month I have to sell something to make it make ends meet. Mitchell's daughter is heading into her senior year of high school, and he doesn't want to uproot his family. I'd like her to finish here because she's been here for three years, but if we can't afford to stay, you got to go where there's work and, and full-time work. And Mitchell isn't the only one starting to think about opportunities elsewhere. Wyoming has already lost nearly 3,000 service sector jobs in the last year. The tidal wave is just starting. Like many other people in energy towns, Mitchell isn't from Gillette, but moved there for the job opportunities. Without those, he sees little reason to stick around. He started looking at jobs in Denver, where he grew up. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Stephanie Joyce. If trends continue, Wyoming will close its gender wage gap last out of all 50 states in the year 2159. The Institute for Women's Policy Research predicted that date by looking at salary rates in the state from 1969 to 2013. Julie Anderson is a research associate at the Institute, and she joined Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard to discuss why Wyoming is such an outlier when it comes to the wage gap. Wyoming is an interesting state. It doesn't really follow the patterns of some states. So in general, what contributes to the wage gap is the fact that women simply are relatively new in the labor force in large numbers and were at first in roles where they were um, not paid as much. And I think part of it is that as women are moving into more and more fields in greater and greater numbers, change is just slow. There's some... um, There's some lingering sort of cultural factors. There are uh, some things that inhibit women sort of fully participating in the labor force throughout their lives, which are things like policies, paid sick leave, paid family leave, so that women still to this day are more likely to be in unpaid caregiving roles. And still it's true that women and men tend to go into different occupations. So if you listed the 20 most common occupations for women and the 20 for men, there's not a lot of overlap in there. And the ones that have women in them are lower paying than the ones that have predominantly men. According to your research, the wage gap in Wyoming would close in 2159. So close to 150 years from now. Mm -hmm. Why would it take so long, potentially, for Wyoming to, to close that gap? The way we do that analysis is it's a projection where we went back to 1960 and we looked at wage data for median annual earnings for women and men. And the reason Wyoming is so far out, it's actually more than 50 years after the next to last state. So it's really way out there on its own does have to do with the fact that instead of men's wages staying the same while women's creep up a little bit, the bar keeps going up for men, making it harder and harder for women to catch up to that. Men uh, in Wyoming are the seventh ranked state in the nation 
for their, their median annual earnings, whereas women are more in the middle of the pack at 22nd. So while men are earning much more than the national average, men living in Wyoming, women in Wyoming are earning below the national average. So that gap is pretty wide and closing slowly because men's wages continue to go up in the state, which is not the usual trend. One of the things that comes to my mind when you say that is that may be due to the state's energy industry in that those jobs tend to pay higher wages and men predominantly fill those jobs. Mm -hmm. The energy industry is seeing a downturn. Could that impact the wage gap if men's salaries start to go down? It would. It would close the wage gap. It's hard to see it as a good news story because, you know, so many families rely on on two earners. So um, it would close the wage gap. But I don't know that really that would be to the benefit of anybody. I mean, we, of course, want the wage gap closed, but not because we want anybody's wages dropping. What about the next generation of earners, millennials who are just coming in to the workforce? How are they doing with the wage gap? If we look at the wage gap for millennials, so we're counting those as people age 16 to 34, it's often smaller than the wage gap if we're comparing women and men sort of of all ages who are working. And Wyoming sort of defies that trend as well in that the wage gap for millennials puts them at last place in the country. So while women overall, the wage gap is um, about 68 cents that every women earn for every dollar men earn. For millennials, it's 72, which is um, the largest wage gap for that age group in the nation. And sort of a troubling, ominous sign because um, many of the things that would tend to reduce wages, stepping back from the labor force, Um, would not yet have occurred for people who are in the 16 to 34 age bracket. Where does change need to come from to improve conditions, especially the wage gap, for women in Wyoming and women around the country? More and more families are relying on women's wages. So this is not just an issue that impacts women. It's an issue that impacts families and communities and the overall economy. And one of the ways to change it would be to address this occupational segregation. It's such a big contributor to the gap. And that may have a lot to do with a lack of information. I just don't know that um, people are informed about the potential earnings of different occupations. I think that we're still not really forthcoming about providing maybe even high school students about potential earnings of different different jobs. So, you know, following your heart is great, but if you also have the information that something that's similar but just slightly different has the potential to have much more sort of family-sustaining wages, you might make a different choice. And the other thing really has to do with this caregiving. As we have a society that's growing older, we just need policies that support families and taking care of families. People have a right to 12 weeks of unpaid leave, but of course, the lower income you are, the, the less that's a possibility. No one can just walk away from 12 weeks of wages. So some of those policies that we know exist around the world, paid sick days, paid family leave, would support women in staying in the workforce instead of stepping back to do these unpaid caregiving roles. And we think ultimately that'll address the wage gap and will also help women be more economically secure in their older age once they're through working in their retirement. Julie Anderson is a research associate for the Institute for Women's Policy Research. Thanks so much, Julie, for joining us. Thanks. It's my pleasure.
Educators across the country and in Wyoming are concerned about school funding. Next, we will speak with the president of the Wyoming Education Association about this. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Educators from across the country are meeting in Washington, D.C. this week for the annual National Education Conference. Kathy Vetter is the Wyoming Education Association president. While some states still struggle with funding, others have restored education money to pre-2008 levels. That's not the case in Wyoming, where a downturn in the energy economy has led to cuts in education funding for the first time in many years. Better says the cuts came faster than educators thought they would. She tells me that educators also fear that things could get worse. Well, a big conversation is not only are we looking at funding cuts, but in K-12, we're also uh, expecting enrollment declines. And our funding system is set to adjust according to enrollment increases or decreases. So there's a real concern uh, with our schools, our K-12 schools, that the 1% cut is already figured in with school districts have uh, dealt with that through either attrition or reduction in force or other ways of cutting the budget, that 1%. But then this fall, schools are concerned that they're going to have a decrease in enrollment, and then that will also decrease their funding level, things as our K-12 funding model is based on ADM or enrollment of students. It is a three-year rolling average for decrease. So um, as it goes down, it will still go down because the average will go down. Um, That three-year rolling average works for a decrease in enrollment. If there's an increase in enrollment, the increase in funding is right away that year. But we are looking at most school districts having a decrease in enrollment, so it won't hit them as hard the first year. But as each year goes on, that decrease in enrollment will affect them more and more. Now, some people, you know, I've heard this, uh, say, well, if enrollment declines, do you need as many teachers? Do you need as many resources? Would you respond to that? Well, when you think about a decrease in enrollment, let's say you lost 50 students. Well, you didn't lose all 50 in one grade. So it isn't like you can say, oh, well, we need two or three less teachers. It might be two in one grade and three in another and one in another, and just decreasing by three students in a grade, you can't actually have one less third-grade teacher because you have three less students. So it really does, um, it is difficult to say you need less teachers when you have 24 less students. That's two students per grade. That doesn't mean one less student per grade level. So it it doesn't quite work out that way. You still have to provide all the services for the students that are there, and the enrollment decrease isn't just in one grade. So our smaller school districts, when they lose one or two students in a grade, they can't decrease the uh, number of teachers. Our larger school districts, if they lose 20 in a grade, possibly can shift students around among schools. But uh, it is difficult because not all the students are leaving from the same grade. 
Kathy Vetter visiting with us of the Wyoming Education Association. So let's change uh, gears, and I know one of the big topics of conversation at the national level will be the Every Student Succeeds Act, which replaced No Child Left Behind. Will you, do you believe that this will probably, this change, lead to a better measurement of how students are doing and, and, and give us a little better sense of how we're doing nationally? I think uh, it's going to uh, take some of the pressure off uh NCLB or No Child Left Behind was more of a test and punish kind of uh, law where everything was tied to testing. With ESSA, there's a decrease in emphasis on testing and a larger emphasis on student learning. And I think uh, it's going to help our students in that it gives a lot of control back to the states and the local. You mentioned taking the pressure off. I know we've had some school districts or at least some schools in the state that have maybe gotten some labels they may not have deserved. Getting all of that out of the way, do you think we can get a little better focus on education? I think we can turn that attention back to student learning, and I think it will improve uh, learning for students. I think we've always, as educators, been focused on the students' And having that burden taken off with the excessive testing will really help educators have more time to work with students and more time for one-on-one work with students when we have less time taking tests. And in the long run, it should really help our students increase their learning. Maybe one last thing for you, Kathy, before I let you go. I mean, going back to maybe some of the the funding reductions and that sort of thing, is there any concern that's going to impact any type of innovation that we have out there in the state? I think in the short term it may impact some of our uh, technology and things such as that. But in in the long term, Our economy is going to come back, and we will continue to um, be a leader in education in our nation. I believe that Wyoming has one of the better education systems in our nation. Kathy Vetter, always nice chatting with you, and uh, have a good time at the conference, and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, and you have a great day. Now let's switch to the environment. How oil and gas drilling can affect drinking water has been a source of controversy across the country, from Pavilion, Wyoming, to Pennsylvania. Residents near drilling operations in the Keystone State have filed thousands of complaints and sometimes waited for years for answers. That's left some isolated communities to fend for themselves in a quest for clean water. For Inside Energy, Miriam Jamil from the Center for Public Integrity reports. Come on, Don. Come on. Fred McIntyre is directing cars to a U-Haul truck filled with hundreds of one-gallon water jugs. About 45 families come here each week for drinking water. The number has grown steadily since 2011, when the first 12 families stopped feeling safe drinking from the wells at their homes. Their neighborhood's called the Conequinessing Woodlands. It's about 30 miles north of Pittsburgh. They rely on donations to keep the water drive going. Fred's wife Janet helps run it. And as you see tonight, they were all anxious, very anxious to get their water. They were anxious because the previous month they ran out of donations. The exact reason for their water problems isn't known, but many suspect it's because of all the natural gas drilling in their area. There are 65 gas wells within two and a half miles of the neighborhood. When residents first started noticing issues like brown, smelly water, the local gas company Rex Energy trucked in water supplies for several months, But ultimately, no connection was found between the drilling and the dirty water. At least eight families are now suing Rex Energy. 
Meanwhile, residents have to find clean water on their own. You know, I got phone calls, do you have any water? Can I get some water off you? We rely on each other to get by. The state has received more than 3,000 water supply complaints since 2007, when hydraulic fracturing or fracking took off here. The DEP provided data to the Center for Public Integrity on over 1,800 of those complaints. For more than half, the investigation took longer than the agency's target of 45 days to complete. Almost one in 10 took more than a year. Out of the 3,000 complaints, the DEP found a connection to oil and gas activity in less than 300. Figuring out whether fracking has impacted water can be really complex, and scientists don't always agree. It's difficult and expensive scientifically. You don't have access to all the information that you wish you had. Stanford professor Rob Jackson has been researching fracking and water since 2010 in different states, including Pennsylvania. He says the people whose water has actually been contaminated by fracking are a small minority. Having said that, we've sampled quite a few people who we believe there's very strong evidence for impacts to their drinking water, and they can't get anyone to listen. When his team found evidence of contamination in Texas and Pennsylvania, they got pushback from the industry and even state regulators. When they didn't find contamination in Arkansas, they got pushback from the environmental community. He said someone is always upset. It's a challenging social environment to work in. It's not for the faint of heart. Chuck Hunnell is not faint of heart. I talked to him and two of his colleagues at a diner in southwestern Pennsylvania's Greene County. Every time I get so disgusted, I say, well, I don't want to do this anymore. I think about Stacy and her kids. And I will do this until the day I die. Chuck is a member of the local chapter of the Isaac Walton League, a conservation group. He's 73 years old, a former teacher and a Vietnam veteran. He got involved in water issues here after meeting a woman whose family got really sick after frack waste leaked near her so home. The people that do end up having difficulty all over the country, they have no one to go to, no one whatsoever. Along with other league members, he's monitoring water in the region's streams, concerned that state officials aren't doing enough to protect the environment from oil and gas production. 69-year-old Ken DeFala is a chapter president. You're looking at three guys here that would have never, never, never been any way, shape, or form protesters or holding signs. That's not who we are. We're just fed up. The DEP declined multiple interview requests for this story, as did gas companies and industry groups. But in a statement, the DEP said it is close to finalizing rules on gas drilling to, quote, strengthen the protections for water supplies. Rules that would ban disposal pits and make companies that damage water supplies more responsible to residents. For Inside Energy, I'm Mariam Jamil with the Center for Public Integrity. That story comes to us from Inside Energy, a public media collaboration that focuses on America's energy issues and the Center for Public Integrity. When we come back, Stephanie Joyce talks carbon capture, and Matt Laszlo tells us that Senator John Barrasso has his work cut out for him. We'll explain. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. One of the great hopes for saving the coal industry is the development of a cheap, 
efficient way to permanently store the carbon emitted from it. But so far, carbon capture and storage has struggled to live up to expectations. David Moeller is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Clean Coal and Carbon Management at the U.S. Department of Energy and is in charge of federal research and development in those areas. In an interview, Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce started by asking him what we should make of the fact that a number of carbon capture projects have failed recently after the Department of Energy abandoned its support for them. Well, a couple of things I'd say about that. One is I don't personally consider the projects to have failed. So there is valuable information that's come from every project we've initiated. So we've got good engineering work that's been done. We've got good subsurface characterization that's been done. We've got good market-based kind of uh, dialogue established that didn't, didn't exist before. So I don't consider them to be failures from a technical perspective, from advancing the technology. Not every project has proceeded to completion, but several have. And so a couple I would point to, there is a Boundary Dam project in Canada that DOE was involved with. There is another project that is about to begin operation that is also a power plant retrofit. It is the Parish project in Texas. Whose responsibility is it to be investing in carbon capture technologies? Well, it seems to me like one of those areas where the government really does, does have a role where, you know, it, because it's all cost today and, and no value on the other side or little value on the other side of the equation, it is, it is, I think, an appropriate role for government to make that investment. You know, we know we're going to need it to meet what we've already articulated as our national goals for climate, for example. So somebody's got to do it and, and government makes sense to do it. Uh, but I do believe that if we can continue to bring the cost down, which we're working very hard on in my group, and find ways to create value that economic equation will begin to really help the technology advance. What kind of uh, investment is the Obama administration making in the future of coal technology? Well, it, it, it crosses a number of fronts. We actually have a coal white paper that lays out all the different investments that DOE makes uh, in, in coal-related you know, technologies. And, and frankly, I would I think we need to begin to think about it in terms of carbon related technologies. Carbon has great value as feedstocks in a number of different processes. So I think to only think about it in terms of coal may be a little bit myopic. But it's all the way from, you know, the budget in my shop to do fundamental R&D to things that go on in the national labs to our loan program office that will guarantee loans for uh, carbon capture and sequestration projects, for example. So there's, a, there's kind of a panoply of, of different investments being made. There's a growing movement to simply move away from burning fossil fuels. Uh, why shouldn't we go that route? I think the, one of the fundamental reasons to not go that route is because even if the U.S. goes that way, the rest of the world won't because they economically can't. And so countries like China and India and other Indonesia, other countries, are going to continue to use coal and fossil fuels for decades into the future. So if our true objective is a climate objective, climate is a global issue. So if our true objective is less than or equal to 2 degrees centigrade, the technologies have to come from someplace to manage that uh, independent of the U.S. Now, then you can begin to argue, well, then does the U.S. need to have a role in it? Uh, My answer is yes, and for a couple of reasons. One is for U.S. competitiveness. You know, do uh, China and Japan can sell those technologies globally? Do we want our industry, our, our companies to sell those technologies globally too? And I would argue yes for job creation and, frankly, for 
meeting global target, you know, global climate objectives. I think we have a role. Here in Wyoming, there's been a lot of emphasis recently on creating valuable products mm-hmm. um, with the CO2. I guess, how do you see uh, the creation of products fitting in with the overall goal of reducing CO2? I see it as a bridge. Uh, well, well, first of all, two things. One is, you know, sequestra- permanent sequestration is really the, the gold standard. Put it in a saline aquifer and it, it turns into rock over time and you keep it there. That's kind of really where you ultimately want to go. But here's, here's how I look at that. Today, if you look at carbon capture and sequestration, it's all, it's all cost. It's all cost to existing entities unless you can create some value on the other side of the equation. Enhanced oil can do that, although at, at today's price of oil and previously lower prices of oil, it it's, doesn't quite balance the equation. But you need something on that, on that value side of the equation. What these other utilization technologies can do is begin to incrementally add to that value. So now you've got something that offsets the cost where it now becomes economically viable to, you know, to do the work that we need to do. Thank you very much for taking the time. Sure. David Muller is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Fossil Energy with the Department of Energy. Wyoming Senator John Barrasso has one of the more difficult jobs in Washington this summer. He's chairing the GOP platform committee for the party's convention. Matt Laszlo reports from Washington on the tough road ahead for the state's junior senator. Ever try to herd cats? Senator Barrasso is giving it a whirl this summer. As chair of the Republican platform committee, he's charged with helping usher through a cohesive party platform at a time when the party is arguably its most divided in decades. See? The party's presumptive nominee, Donald Trump, is more isolationist than most in the GOP. He's called for a ban on Muslim immigration before kind of walking it back, and wants to build a massive wall to keep Mexicans out. I caught up with Barrasso in the basement of the Capitol before we hopped the train connecting it to the senator's offices. I asked him if his job is made harder with Trump on the top of the ticket. No, not at all, because this is really a delegate-driven platform. Many of these people have been on platform committees in the past. They're, a number of them have served, currently serve or have served in their state legislatures. Uh, so I've talked to a number of them. Uh, we're going to have a conservative platform. Brasso says his party's inclusive platform rules, with lots of delegates, makes his job easier. It's interesting. The Democrats have 15. We have 112, two from each state, as well as uh, two from each of the, the, the territories. So we're uh, meeting with some of the chairmen of the subcommittees, and then, you know, we meet a full week ahead of time in Cleveland to go through all of it. Brasso's colleagues have several thoughts on what should be included in the platform. Economic growth, an economic plan that gets people back to work and provides a certainty, that's the most important thing to me. We don't have an environmental platform. I mean, I'd like to have a clean energy uh, platform in the Republican Party. That's West Virginia Senator Shelley Moore Capito and South Carolina's Lindsey Graham. And here's one of Trump's first supporters in Congress, Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions. But I would be open to considering a much shorter platform um, that boldly sets out clear visions that everybody could understand in, you know, a couple of pages maybe. While all of that debate is happening in the Senate, 
House Republicans have spent the summer laying out their own agenda. Trump recently taunted GOP leaders in Congress, saying they need to get tougher, and if they didn't, he would just do it by myself. It appears that House members have let him go it alone. House Speaker Paul Ryan has spent the summer unveiling a series of new policy proposals called A Better Way. Let's face it. People know what Republicans are against. Now, we're going to give you a plan that shows you what we are for. The six-part plan spans everything from addressing poverty through incentivizing work to shoring up security on the nation's borders without merely focusing on building a wall. To many in Washington, the series of House Republican proposals draws a stark contrast with what Trump has been promising voters on the stump. Pennsylvania Republican Pat Meehan says he doesn't think the speaker's effort will galvanize Republicans. I don't know that anybody's going to be running on things, but I think it is clearly a, a, a good undertaking to begin to identify issues and solutions that are able to be used as a basis for conversation with the American people. So what will Republicans be running on? Even with all the competing GOP proposals floating around, Barrasso still hopes to include a stout Western package in the party's platform. A lot of issues that affect us in the Rocky Mountain West in terms of energy, uh, being good environmental stewards of the land, public lands is going to be a part of it. As a doctor, health care is certainly going to be an important component, too. As for Trump, Barrasso says he's urged him to embrace the platform he's helping craft this summer. I met with him when he was here a couple of weeks ago. I've encouraged him to embrace the platform, talked about the things that were important to getting the the country growing again in terms of the economy uh, and jobs, the economy and national security. Throughout the summer, Trump has been a headache for Republican Party leaders, and analysts don't expect him to stay on script once Barrasso and the other delegates agree on a platform. But some are hoping it will give the vulnerable Republicans running down ticket something to unify around, even as many continue to distance themselves from their party's presumptive nominee. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. It wasn't until the 1980s that kayakers successfully descended the Clark's Fork of the Yellowstone River in northwest Wyoming. But it was also around then that the state of Wyoming drew up plans to dam the canyon. A new documentary called Our Local Epic by kayakers Will Taggart and Aaron Prusan follows the history of the Clark's Fork. Prusan starts by telling me the incredible story of how the Nez Perce tribe fled the U.S. military down into the canyon. The Nez Perce had, had, were proud to say that they'd never been in a war with, with any of the white settlers. And that changed because they were ranchers at that time and they, they had cattle herds and, and they had some of their cattle stolen and they chased the people down and, and killed them and that's when the military came in. The army, I think General Sherman was furious how you know this band of people with young people and elders and wounded could be eluding the military. So when they started down, it was clear they went into the Clarks Fort Canyon, they thought, well, there's no other way out. And, and they had the divisions waiting there at the mouth of the canyon. And, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about where exactly they went. And, and there's certainly some places that when you think about leading horses down and in there, 
every time that that Will and I have hiked down into the canyon, I mean, it's just a, a not a fun hike, really. I mean, to go down trails that steep. So, I mean, it's a terribly sad, sad story, you know, and it continues really in the end because they they lied to Chief Joseph. They told him if he surrendered, he would get to go back to Lapwai in Idaho, and, and he didn't get to go back. So, And then it seems like there was a long period of time when nobody really went into the Clark's Fork. Then in 1984, the first kayakers were able to descend through that canyon. You, you mentioned in the film that there's fewer portages now. How does that happen? How do you find uh, the ability to, to run more of the river and not need to get out and, and carry the kayak as much? Well, I was on the, the run in, in 93, which really kind of drastically reduced the number of portages. And I think one was technology. We had shorter, more maneuverable boats. The, the level of skills, you know, had gone up. And just a, a more aggressive, but also more creative way at looking at things. I think, they, I think the, the first descent crew probably got in there and looked at some stuff and were like, there's no way, you know, we're going to run that. And thinking about the equipment they have now, you probably, if we had that equipment, we probably wouldn't be running it either. So the second descent, do you mind telling me the story about that one? Well, that's, that story is really quite amazing. It was Paul Kopsinski, and he did it by himself on the second descent. His good friend Dave Ryan, they wanted to do the first descent, and they're actually locals. Paul was from Billings, Dave was from Cody, and they were friends that met kind of in the middle to paddle at Clark's Fork. He was like, Dave, let's go do this run. And Dave was like, I'm just not ready. I, I haven't been kayaking enough this year, and so... Paul Kopsinski just decided to go for it. So he ended up running it, and he came on to all these scary moments. The, the last day, right as he was in the Box Canyon, when he woke up, the river was raging, and he was just trapped like in the middle of the canyon and had to go, basically. Had all these amazing stories of these like moves that he barely made, and he's like, it was not the safe thing to do at all. It, my life was on the line like the entire time. And so uh, maybe you can tell me there's kind of a tragic end to their relationship. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that part of their story? Yeah, well, Dave Ryan and Paul Kopsinski, they were really good friends. And um, Dave Ryan was a really good climber. Dave was like, Paul, let me take you climbing. We'll go up into the Tetons. It's going to be an amazing experience. You'll love it. Um, they got to one point up on the north face of the Grand. Um, and Dave Ryan, they had just gotten up to a ledge and they were coiling up their ropes and they were going to go around and... As soon as Dave stepped around the corner, Paul said uh, rocks like came down and like took him off the cliff and fell like a hundred meters or so down to the rock. And Paul said that he was just blown away, like changed his life right then to watch his friend um, get pushed off the cliff. And Paul inevitably gave up all of his outdoor activities. No more climbing, no more kayaking. And he moved to France to become a monk. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and the death of David Ryan also went on to have other repercussions as well. He, um, his father-in-law ended up spearheading some of the efforts to stop the yeah. Clark's Fork from, from being dammed. So Lamar Emphy, you know, was very impacted by Dave as well. And, and his daughter was like, I think we should do something in memory of David. I, mean, I think we should, you know, make a difference and we should, we should protect it and make it a wild and scenic river. You know, I think the key thing that Lamar really did is is really raise awareness about how special the river was. And he had actually kayaking photos from that David Ryan and Paul Kopsinski had gotten. And then he spent basically a year just 
going around there and taking pictures. A wild and scenic campaign is just a really delicate thing. You, you need to, to build support without getting people angry at you too soon. But as people will see in the movie that, you know, the delegation, you know, was essentially against him to begin with. And it took, you know, basically his, his work and time and his charisma to, to turn it around. And so it seems like one of the messages of the film is just this idea that recreation can lead to a certain amount of commitment to conservation. Can you talk a little bit about that part of the, that message? I don't know, you want me to say it's, something about that? Well, it's, there's been some petty squabbles lately between you know, people that are really involved with rec, outdoor recreation, people are involved in conservation, but you find that really most of these groups are really intertwined, and to have people that are passionate about rivers and of all ages, young people and, and beyond and passionate about the outdoors is so important as we work to preserve the rest of, of the wild portions of the West. And, and there are many threats out there. And we're so powerful when we work together and to be divided just, just really doesn't make sense. Well, thank you guys for uh, taking some time to talk to me about it and best of luck as it's uh, touring around the country. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Melody. That was director Will Taggart and producer Aaron Prusan talking about their new documentary, Our Local Epic. The film will screen at the Riverfest in Cody on August 20th. When we come back, we'll wrap things up with some travel tips. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. When we talk about energy efficiencies, we're usually talking about at home turning off the lights and unplugging appliances. A lot of energy is lost when we burn fossil fuels to make electricity. Our inside energy team shines a light on efforts to make combustion more efficient. Catherine Roberts starts us off. Our story begins with a question we received from a student. Garrett Bess is 14, and he just finished up 8th grade at Wellington Middle School in northern Colorado. We're talking to him and others in our story on Skype. Is it possible to collect non-renewable resources by using renewable resources to power these methods of collecting them by making a power loop? We needed to simplify that a bit. Garrett is interested in the waste heat created when energy is produced in a power plant. All that wasted heat, can it be reused, recycled? turned into energy? He got the idea from his uncle, who runs two gas turbine electricity plants in Louisiana. So my uncle, he showed me, like he took me around one day and showed me how like his power plants work and it just got me really interested in it. And I was wondering if you could eventually like make a power plant someday that doesn't lose any thermal energy and doesn't lose any energy anywhere. That's an important question. So we'll pause here for a quick science lesson. In a thermal engine, when fuel is burned at high pressure, heat enters the system and makes something happen, in our case, moving a turbine that generates electricity. But the process always wastes a lot of heat. For instance, a coal-fired power plant is usually only a little more than 30% efficient. On its own, a natural gas turbine doesn't do much better. But there are ways to improve. Garrett and I caught up with his uncle, Bill Ray. His plants already use waste heat to power generators. So how common is this? You see that uh, utilities more and more are building, uh, they're not building coal, they're not building nuclear, they're building combined cycle gas facilities. Combined cycle, that's the key. The air is pulled in, 
to the combustion turbine area. Using his phone, Ray takes us on a virtual tour of one of the plants he manages. Essentially, the system begins with two side-by-side -side natural gas combustion turbines. Their design is similar to a jet engine. They do their thing, transforming heat into power, and then... So we take that exhaust from those machines and push it into heat recovery steam generators. The waste heat is used to make steam, the steam powers its own turbine, and creates additional power. How much additional power? Ray estimates the gain for his combined cycle setup. It's probably upwards of somewhere around 60%. That's pretty good, but can we do even better? We asked Anna Chittam with the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy. She says yes, we can do better. And the answer is something called combined heat and power, or CHP. A best-in-class might be closer to 85% efficient. That high efficiency comes from the fact that the heat isn't used to generate more electricity, but is used as heat. Hot water, it can be space heating. You can run it through uh, a system called absorption cooling, and you can produce air conditioning. That works well for places like university campuses and hospitals. But combined heat and power systems only make up about 8% of the country's total electric capacity. If it's so efficient, why isn't there more of it? A big reason? CHP has a PR problem. It's been called CHP. It's been called cogeneration. And I think that there are some really interesting benefits to CHP that are just poorly understood. Benefits like better reliability and the potential to balance out intermittent renewables like solar and wind. But now, with new power plant regulations on the horizon, states are scrambling for more efficiency. It might be combined heat and power's moment to shine. But still, can we ever get to that perfect 100% efficient power generation? We put it to Bill Ray. There, there's always a never-ending battle that would make it difficult to ever reach 100%, but I, I think we can always continue to try, and I think, you know, we can get a lot closer than we are today. For Inside Energy, I'm Katherine Roberts, reporting with Wellington Middle School student Garrett Bess. For many Americans, summer means road trips. So Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer checked in with a couple of touring musicians for some pro tips you can use the next time you hit the open road. This is what the living room looks like when you get back from a weekend on the road. So there's piles of badges over there. I have six now. Sharon Martinson performs as The Littlest Birds. When she's touring, she logs around 6,000 miles a month. In fact, most years she spends as much time on the road as she does at her house. Even so, she says in six years of touring, she's hardly ever stayed in hotels, and she's never stopped for fast food. If you're sitting and you're driving a lot, you don't really need to eat. Mostly you're eating because you're bored. Of course, eventually you do need to eat. So Martinson packs plenty of water, a cooler with ice, fresh fruit, healthy snacks. I do have a whole section of a bag that's just things that require only hot water because you can stop at a gas station. There's always hot water for free. There's like always the coffee station things, but there's always a hot water spigot. To make oatmeal, for instance, she recommends containers with snapping lids and keeping some silverware handy. Lunch or dinner can also be cooked on the road. So my freezer is full of 
these here um, engine block burritos. Yes, engine block burritos. Basically, you make burritos, wrap them in foil, freeze them, and then... You've been driving, so you pop open the hood and find a place on the engine block, preferably touching metal. I probably give it 20 minutes to go from frozen to thawed to like cheese nice and melty and delicious. Jalon Crossland is another Wyoming musician who spends a lot of time on the road, which is where I reached him by phone. He also has an engine block recipe. Wrap potatoes, carrots, onions, and seasonings in foil. Then you just put it on your intake manifold on the motor. And you drive for about an hour and then check it. And after a while, you'll have a perfectly cooked little stew. Crossland calls these recipes for disaster. Another one is the Altoids can cake. For this recipe, he travels with a jug of cake batter, a small tin, like an Altoids can, two wires, and four alligator clips. Stir up the cake mix into the Altoids can, and then you attach the alligator clips to the Altoid can and to your battery terminals, and it only takes like 10 minutes and you have an Altoid cake. There you go, main course and dessert, all cooked by your car. Then, when it's time to restock on supplies, Sharon Martinson recommends farmer's markets. It's a nice way to get to see a slice of the community, eat what is local and fresh and in season. And if you're a tourist, it's a great place to run into artisans who have something that you're not going to find at the Yellowstone gift shop. Stopping periodically is healthy, too. You can even stay limber in the car. I have, if I'm not driving, what I call front seat yoga. Basically just crossing your leg and putting one ankle across the other knee. And when it's time to turn in for the night, Sharon Martinson and Jalon Crossland recommend camping on public land, like a national forest. But if there isn't a grassy spot nearby, head for the asphalt. The truck stops in the Walmarts. I mean, everybody knows that those are the places to go. And the lull of the semis idling puts you to sleep real nice. And then the fumes keep you that way. Assuming you wake up the next morning, take the scenic route, stop at the historical markers, and embrace the open road. By the way, you can find Sharon Martinson's engine block burrito recipe at our website, wyomingpublicmedia.org. There's even a photo showing where to put the burrito in a Honda Civic engine. Happy trails! For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Micah Schweitzer. Thanks for listening to this edition of Open Spaces. If you missed any part of the program or if you'd like to hear a segment again, you can find it on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. You can also sign up for our podcast there or on iTunes. And a rater is our web editor. If you have good ideas for future shows, please send them to us through that website, or you can contact all of our reporters on Twitter. Last weekend, Open Spaces won a national award for Best News and Public Affairs Program. The show placed second, which means that Open Spaces has won either first or second eight times in the ten years the show has aired. Next week, we will air a special edition of the award-winning podcast, Human Nature. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.